Today we are celebrating the 112th anniversary of the dedication of this church, and it's a good day to give thanks to God for all of the sanctification that's gone on here, all of those who've been baptized, all the weddings, all the funerals, all the clergy and the sisters who served here, and all those who've supported the church with their donations and so on. It's a great blessing to uh, be here. Uh, this church has been in function uh, all those years except for about one before the monks came in 1991. In reflecting on the significance of this celebration that the, the church would have us celebrate as a solemnity, I was thinking about ancient peoples and how they celebrated the holy. They were not scientific in the old world, certainly not by our standards. And many people today consider science to be the key to explaining the world. And from this perspective, ancient religions are fails, uh, failed attempts to understand the world. There's some truth to this idea. Ancient religions are attempts to understand the world. When we see a violent storm, we can understand it in several ways. One way is to explain how atmospheric pressure and the movements of air and water molecules produce certain physical effects though the truth is that these kind of chaotic events are surprisingly difficult to pin down with exact scientific descriptions. But then there's the human experience of a storm. Think about what it's like when it rains out really uh, with a lot of wind and so on and lightning and thunder. There's a terrifying beauty of the sun going dark, the magic of swift moving clouds far overhead, the sense of the sky drawing closer and closer, the sound of wind and the sight of tree branches being flung back and forth, the startling sound of thunder. It's a great mystery to all these sensations that we have, the sense of some profound meaning, something important taking place. But what exactly is it? Can science explain that? No, it cannot. What about other realities like the miracle of childbirth or of the innocent joy of children playing or of the absolute perfection of form of a horse or a lion or a spider. Again, science can tell us certain things about how the growth of these bodies has taken place, but what can it tell us about puppies playing together, what, what that means, why we feel attracted to it, or the effect on us of watching a majestic eagle soaring up to its area on a remote mountaintop. Or how can science explain the staggering mystery when we look up at the star-filled sky at night? When the ancients observed all of these things, they didn't offer physical scientific explanations, sure, but they were not at all silly or unserious. They sought the meaning of these things by searching after their causes in the divine. Who made these things? What do they mean? Who gives them meaning? The ancient Israelites celebrated their liberation from Egypt and establishment as a people by recalling just these sorts of manifestations of the divine, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the terrifying cloud and fire in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. God is the one who reveals the meaning of his many creatures and actions. And often when ancients would experience these mysteries, they would want to remember them, and so they would construct a shrine or a temple as a way of calling to mind, fixing in place this penetration of profound meaning into the world, the advent of the divine into the mundane. 
And so we think of Jacob setting up a stone to commemorate the uncanny meeting he had with an angel of God when he was a fugitive on the run, a very liminal person. And this process of fixing places and times helps stabilize the meaning of these events, which we share them with with each other. This is important. We don't just make up meaning on our own. Something about meaning requires it to be shared with other people. Ultimately, the Temple of Solomon came to encapsulate all of these events of Israel's history, recalling them, renewing them, and thereby making God manifest, even visible. Many of the Psalms talk about seeing God in the temple. The dedication of the temple, we heard about it in the first reading, took eight days, and it culminated in God appearing in this cloud of smoke, entering the temple and filling it, uh, taking up residence there. Unfortunately, Israel never seems to fulfill her destiny uh, as the place where God is dwelling to bring God to the nations to sanctify the world. And in fact, the nations continued to dominate her politically. And it was under one of these dominations in Roman times that another Israelite, this time a daughter of Jacob, has another encounter with an angel of God. The Virgin Mary does not need to set up a shrine to commemorate this encounter with Gabriel because she herself is the shrine. The Holy Spirit overshadows her and God takes up residence in her very body. God is made manifest and visible in her son, Jesus. And this is the greatest mystery of them all, and it encapsulates all of them together. And yet it's so easy to overlook because God looks so ordinary, even a bit underwhelming. He's a man like us, but he's homeless, he's penniless. He ends up dying the death of an enemy of the state. And this death allows God to take up residence in the underworld of all places, which is to say that God in Jesus Christ is extending a claim to total universal sovereignty, offering his kingdom to everybody, even the dead. When Jesus rises, the evangelist John makes a lot of the fact uh, that these first eight days after the resurrection are really important, and they parallel the eight days of the dedication of Solomon's temple. The eight days culminate in Thomas seeing Jesus touching him, God in the flesh. St. John earlier has told us very clearly, Jesus identifies his risen body as the new and everlasting temple. That's the place where God is, where God makes meaning real, where he enters the world, he can be seen and touched. So the new temple, the body of Christ, the church, arrives at the fullness of its dedication as Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into the hearts of the apostles on the eighth day. And we see the twelve candles at the sides of the church alight as the twelve apostles were with the Holy Spirit. We, the heirs of the apostles, who've received this great gift of the gospel from them, receive the same gift of illumination in baptism and confirmation, and God takes up residence in us, in our hearts, Nevertheless, we haven't stopped building temples like this one, like this church. This church, like every Catholic church, is not just a space where we gather a bunch of people and do things together. It is God's dwelling, and it makes God manifest in its very shape, in the the accoutrements that are here, in the vestments we wear, and so on. Just as the old temple, Solomon's temple, encapsulated the events of salvation recalling and renewing them and making them manifest, 
So the people who built this building were doing the same thing. That's what they understood themselves to be doing. They're participating in this process of making manifest all the events, all the meaning of our salvation, showing us what it means to be children of God. And we see today, we will see God in the flesh in the Holy Eucharist and touch him. And so we in this building are extensions of the great mystery of God's incarnation in the world that he created. God is taking possession and revealing the meaning, his intentions for all of these things, his, his loving uh, and glorious intentions for these things. The symbols of the church unlock the great mysteries of our existence, our life and our destiny. So let us watch carefully to see how God is revealing himself today in our midst. And then let us be ready to share with others his great generosity and love.